I always associate it with Terminator every single time. I, I, I think that's that's cultural. You know, algorithms have made our lives much easier. They're probably gonna kill us all. And with good reason. At some point, some asshole is going to design a machine that can self-replicate and that has self-interest. Uh, the robot uprising <laughs> that will eventually destroy humanity. The sophisticated AI machine learning that allows it to adapt to whatever we try to do to quash it. And AI should be exciting for people. I fear that it's going to happen out of sheer probability. Work positions will be taken over. Yes, it's kind of a big unknown of like, could be great, could be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Let's roll the dice. <laughs> See what happens. Or not. From Outface Productions, this is Listening Glass. So, what are we talking about today, Robin? Well, Arjuna, I thought we'd do our pilot episode about a really casual and, you know, shallow topic. Something that we wouldn't really get easily lost in the weeds on, like, I don't know, artificial intelligence, maybe? Yeah, I mean, how much could that be to discuss around that, right? Yeah. Couple half-baked conjectures and call it good from there. Let's find a starting point for this. So there's a lot of different ways we can start it, but let's just start it the most kind of um, dramatic way we can and, and play a, qu- a quote from Elon Musk. I think the danger of AI is much greater than the, the, the danger of nuclear warheads by a lot. Ooh, <laughs> scary. <laughs> Elon's freaked out. That, that was a pretty dire quote. Um, you know, talking about how AI is actually more dangerous than nuclear proliferation. I mean, that, that's a pretty strong claim. Well, you know, and the only thing more dangerous than nukes is AI with nukes. Agreed. <laughs> that's a pretty terrifying <laughs> combination. So I think what Musk is getting at here is he's touching on a thought which is kind of pervasive when people discuss AI, which is that... A lot of us have this kind of vague idea that it has powerful implications and that those implications could end up being dangerous. But Mm -hmm. how much does any of us really know uh, about that conversation and about the actual dangers and what we might be facing in our lifetimes? Mm -hmm. That's some of what we're going to discuss on the show here today is to get a bit more specific and to go into some of the possible scenarios and contrast them with what we've been learning about AI over the last couple of weeks. Right, totally. Um, And and part of it is I I don't know exactly what Musk is afraid of, but I think we can at least speculate a little bit on it by talking about what we've seen portrayed in media, right, about what AI could be able to do someday in terms of what we see in sci-fi movies and things like that look at what AI currently can do, and also just try to get our heads around what AI is. Like, what is what is intelligence in general, human intelligence in, in particular? Is AI fundamentally different? And, you know, what are, what are the limitations of it, if it is different, et cetera? So we're going to start with this question, what is intelligence? Now, Robin, you, you've assembled this study of the nine types of intelligence by Howard Gardner. So do you want to yep. take us through those real quick? Right. So this guy's been around for a long time. If you took a psych class, you probably heard of him. And he laid out nine different forms of intelligence. And usually intelligence was thought of as one 
like you you literally measured it with one score, which we often do still with your IQ score. And Gardner's like, this is silly. You know, there's a lot of different types of intelligence. Some of them surprise me. Some of them are are obvious, like logical, mathematical intelligence is maybe the first one people would think of. It's kind of classic. Mm, right. Linguistic is one of them. Interpersonal, which is kind of like social intelligence. I like he has these an intrapersonal one. Intrapersonal, that one is uh, understanding yourself as, apart from understanding other people. Is that right? Yes. Right. Okay. Right. So kind of think introspection, think self-awareness. Right. Okay. Um, cool. Yep. And then maybe contrasting with that, with, he has one called existential, mm. which is maybe the, f- I was going to say flimsy, <laughs> 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 but I like it. I like that he included it. Um, it would, it's probably a whole nother show to unra- unwrap what that might mean. Um, but I want to keep it in mind just as we get into the topic of AI and talking about what AI can become is would existential intelligence or even interpersonal intelligence be something that AI might be able to acquire at some point. So that's human intelligence, all this stuff, even like musical, he put naturalist on there as another one, spatial, bodily kinesthetic. So like whether or not you're quote unquote athletic might, might rely on your bodily kinesthetic intelligence. So some of this, it's somewhat easy to conceive of an AI being able to do it. Like obviously logical, mathematical, that's what computers do, you know, the glorified calculators in a lot of ways. So the question is, when we think of AI, I often think of a robot in a movie, right? Like think of um, the Terminator and Mm. it seems to have consciousness. And so I think maybe the, the first question is, can we get a computer from being a calculator to having consciousness? And a lot of people, in, I would say kind of instinctually or intuitively would reject that idea. Mm. And I think it's easy to do. And it's this concept that I've heard referred to as neural chauvinism, which is basically the belief that consciousness, there's some magic spark in organic brain matter that makes consciousness possible. We don't know what it is, but there must be something special about the human being or the human brain that makes our self-awareness and our our soul and our consciousness this like property that we have as humans that we couldn't possibly replicate in a machine or in a computer with electric circuits and silicon and i loved when i first heard of that because i think i had that bias before too but it's a very difficult thing to actually explain right you have to, once you assert that humans are unique, you have to start explaining, you have to understand basically the process, that organic process from which consciousness arises, and then distinguish that from anything you could do in a computer, right? And so it kind of comes down to what humans are, or the mind, in a lot of ways, it's an information system, where we have, let's say, there's processes in our brain that are firing all the time and they end up being representations mental represent they're driving a mental representation of the world right and in a lot of ways a computer does the same thing there's information it's being manipulated in real time to simulate or represent something else in the world there's this kind of symbolism going on and the mind and the computer both are 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 mirroring reality on some level 
And so in that sense, they're kind of, they're fundamentally very similar. And so it's, it's kind of a, a good foot to start on, I think, in thinking about what AI could become. And, and I think we just have to assume that there's no fundamental reason it can't be as sophisticated or conscious as we are. At least that's the idea. Until I can maybe prove that otherwise, it's certainly proven difficult to do, and we may never get there. But I think fundamentally, it's a good place to start. People have been talking about the concept of、uh, you know something we we could call like an old school AI since antiquity, for as long as we can remember. Whether it's a, a fake person or a fake animal or a fake something, and then imbuing it with some kind of autonomy, and various people have envisioned this process through various different ways, according to their various cultural beliefs. So, Frankenstein being a very salient model that we think of, and and that's not too that doesn't come from too long ago. But there are also, you know, golems, right? Golems have been a thing. And what is a golem? I like this concept, but I, yeah, could you unwrap that a little? Yeah. So a golem is a being which is imbued with life, and they've been made of various things in the past.、Mm-hmm. There's like I'm I'm imagining a little clay figure that looks like a human. Yeah. It's this idea of kind of us. Being creators of another like version of ourselves, right, or like a smaller version of ourselves that we would be kind of a god figure over. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that would do our bidding. So, definition-wise, a golem is an animated anthropomorphic being that is magically created entirely from inanimate matter, usually clay or mud. So, the idea is that you would put、uh, maybe a soul or some kind of life. Into a little figurine that you had fashioned. Yeah, I think that pretty much nails the idea of AI. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's just interesting to think about how various different cultures throughout time have conceived of this, and they've used whatever technology, whatever crafts, whatever ideas about what. Uh, from whence consciousness comes to conceive of and, in theory, create something that has a bit of its own life or a bit of its own intelligence.、Mm-hmm. So it's not a new idea, and I and I want to say that I don't view artificial intelligence as different from that aim.、Mm-hmm. It's just this is the modern version of it, and I don't know that there's any records of people successfully having created golems in the past. It's kind of a myth, but it does seem like we're on the advent of actually being able to maybe create something in this age. So that's one of the things that's exciting about artificial intelligence is that we may actually be able to accomplish it. Okay, so in talking about making something that does our bidding, I think it it gets to a point about AI where. I think a really central part of the definitions that I've found is that AI always mimics some aspect of the human mind or does something that humans usually do. One of the coolest examples I can think of—you were talking about golems—is there was a little kind of clockwork robot made, and I'm going to get the date within a couple hundred years. <laughs> It was around the 1500s. And someone made a clockwork robot that would pray, that would kind of、hmm. walk around and bow and 
do the sacrament. And <laughs> it's it's funny that we come back to that or bring that up because it brings me back to the idea of a robot having existential intelligence. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is one of the first examples. It's, I thought existential robots would be like one of the last things we'd make, but there it was. So that was the 15th century and that was clockwork technology. Literally, it was gears and maybe a spring as an energy source. So it's the modern era and World War II and all of the history around Alan Turing and the advent of computers that brought AI and the idea of making a more sophisticated simulacrum or golem, it, that's really made it possible. And that's we've seen a lot of kind of stop and go progress, I'd say, since then. And now one of the things to remember is that not only was our technological, uh, like our computer, for example, technology a lot more primitive in the 50s and the 60s, but our understanding of biology was as well. Mm. Something that really emerged, which jump-started artificial intelligence in the more modern era was this huge explosion of neuroscience. Mm. When people started understanding the way neurons work, the way information is organized in the brain, and, and we're still relatively young in that understanding, but we have made a lot of progress on it. So when people started to work with that, it gave us whole new paradigms with which to start to think about artificial intelligence and maybe to try to model what's happening in the brain in the digital realm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the timeline of these things because even we talked about Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence and that didn't come out till 1983. So how researchers were even thinking of human intelligence and the types of results they were trying to achieve. I'm, I'm curious what their simulations consisted of and what kinds of intelligence they were trying to capture. A lot of it was stuff which seems, you know, kind of elementary to us now. So chatbots was actually a big one. Mm. And solving very basic, what you would even think of as robotics problems, like how how do you get a robot to cross a room without tripping, right? Okay. Robotics, even though it's arguably a, a very different discipline, it's intrinsically related to artificial intelligence because a big part of being smart is actually getting things done and, and you need to be able to do that somehow. So in this kind of anthropomorphized version of artificial intelligence, which has been an ideal since the beginning, they've concurrently wanted to develop the ability to reason and think and interact with an environment with the the actual physical means of getting that done. And that has proved, you know, robotics has been around for a long time, but it has proved surprisingly difficult to create a system which is both capable of, you know, like let's say you have a, you walk into a messy room and there's stuff on the floor and maybe there's furniture And the basic ability to just walk into the room, perceive the objects that are there and pick a path Mm -hmm. through it and move the particular body that you have in an intelligent way to get through it. We take that for granted as as life forms because we've been programmed to do that for, you know, millions, maybe even billions of years. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So we really take the ability to do that for granted. But each part of that, the perception, the reasoning, the ability to move one's body in an intelligent way. Just the motor actions themselves right, right. are complicated, where you have many muscles firing and precise coordination with each other that we don't have to consciously think about, right? No. But like consciously, don't. if I'm going to bend down and pick something up, that's all I'm thinking is, oh, bend down, pick it up. I'm not thinking, okay, uh, open my elbow 20 degrees and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, close my knee joints another 50 degrees and all of this. Right. So, yeah, so this is this bodily kinesthetic intelligence, which uh, Gardner was talking about. That has proved to be a lot more difficult to simulate than people first thought. Mm -hmm. So why is it really at the forefront of thought today? Well, the reason is because we've reached, arguably anyway, we've reached a critical mass of things going right. Um, one of them is that our computers are a lot faster than they used to be. So they can do things like make a million calculations in a useful amount of time and then come up with the best decision. Mm -hmm. That's something that used to take computers a long time, but which is now, I won't say it's trivial, but there, for, for a lot of things, it is trivial. Right. So like, for example... When we talk about that approach to coding, just being able to calculate many, many things and pick mm. the best choice. This was really exemplified by the deep blue computer that IBM developed, which eventually beat Gary Kasparov at chess. Oh, okay. What that computer was designed to do, this is an oversimplification, but it was designed to build, like you were talking about, Robin, these huge decision trees. If, mm -hmm. if I do this, then what's going to happen? And it could basically play out the moves in the future and see a result of, I would lose if I did this, or I'm going to be more likely to lose if I did this, or if I do that, I'll be more likely to win. Basically the same way you and I would play chess, right? I would imagine making the move, imagine what you would do in reply, or imagine two or three three things you would do in reply, and then imagine what I might do to the, each of those three things, right? And that decision tree just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, exactly. This was something that, you know, wasn't really necessarily possible in 1956, but which became possible over time, you know, in the 90s. And this technology, the computer technology enabled Deep Blue to get good enough at simulating hundreds of thousands of chessboard states at once that it could actually beat a, a master chess player. Mm. And it doesn't have to stop to refill its coffee. Uh, <laughs> it sure doesn't. It also doesn't have to pace in a frustrated way to calm its nervous system enough to <laughs> be able to make the next move either. So. Or cry, you know, waste time crying when it loses a bunch of times. <laughs> playing I itself. know, just think about the <laughs> metabolic costs. That was a limitation which has been successively lifting. But there have been other advances that have allowed AI to, have allowed people to start working on deeper problems of AI. And some of these are, um, one of the biggest ones is artificial neural networks. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is interesting. They used to be called perceptrons, and they've actually been in and out of discussion 
uh, I believe ever since people really started working on AI, certainly in the 60s, they were talking about them. Yeah. And there have been these successive waves of people basically getting excited about it and then other people refuting their usefulness. But I think the jury has spoken, uh, you know, I mean, maybe this cycle will keep going, maybe future AI researchers will denounce them again. But current researchers are really all about these artificial neural networks. Hmm. And it's part of the current trend in AI, and it has been delivering some pretty exciting results. So yeah. contrasting with Deep Blue, we can start talking about the alpha software suite. Most notably in the news recently was playing the game Go. People contrasted Go with chess. It was a next frontier for artificial intelligence because the approach that Deep Blue used to solve chess was not really going to work for Go. And the reason is that calculating hundreds of thousands or even millions of game states was sufficient in order to be able to deal with the kind of mathematics of a chessboard. But the numbers with Go, just due to the number of spaces that there are on a Go board and the number of possible permutations of a game state, the numbers were so vast that the deep blue approach to solving it was not going to work. It wasn't really going to be very feasible. Now, it's possible that computers of the future would be able to do those calculations fast enough, but our current computers just aren't really capable of that. Right. So people have been coming up with different ways of solving these problems, and these neural networks, it turns out, are very, very good at doing this. What they're doing is they're applying an approach which we currently call machine learning. Okay, this is where it starts to get fun. And this has been a buzzword for several years now. I've been trying to wrap my head around it the last couple of weeks doing research on this, and I've talked to a few people to get an idea of both neural networks and machine learning. Machine learning, I feel like, is a, a larger, larger, more easily explainable category because it's more general. Machine learning, as I understand it, Arjuna, is an algorithm that can modify itself, or it's a, it's a program that can make modifications to itself to kind of optimize and find a better result to a problem. Is that you, what you've picked up? Yeah, so these neural networks are designed to imitate some parts of the way that our human brains work. And of course, we still don't fully understand the human brain, and we still can't fully simulate it very well. So it's merely an approximation. But what these neural networks do is that they attempt to process information a little bit more like how humans process it, which is not brute force. We're really bad at the brute force, like think about a thousand outcomes and pick the best one. We just don't do that very well. What they're designed to do is they use some intelligent shortcuts that we tend to use, like heuristics is a big one. A heuristic is a process by which our brain goes through a set of thought processes to come to a conclusion about something. And once it figures out a way that it likes the best, then it tends to default to that decision when it's faced with the same choice in the future. An example of a heuristic would be the drive that you take or the path that you take on your way to work every day. When you first got a job or maybe you're going to school or, or somewhere across town, 
takes a while to get to. The first time you got there, you probably looked at a map. Maybe you thought about traffic, time of day. You thought about whether you're driving or taking a bus. You have to work this stuff out, and you have to figure out what your your favorite path is to get there. And oftentimes, you'll over the course of a week or a month or something like that. You'll do it enough times, and you'll figure out what's working and what's not. And at that point, you tend to solidify your behavior around the thing. So you say, "Well, because traffic's like this, and because I'm driving a car, I'm going to take this route to work." Heuristics are all about efficiency. That's the power of the heuristic, is it, it shortcuts a lot of things. Now, these neural networks are basically simulating that process. They use a, a combination of These brute force methods and these smarter heuristic methods to start to develop something which it's not intuition in the way that we experience it as humans, but it starts to look like it. This show is sponsored by Megan Brandenburg Design, your brand illuminated. Does your project or business need a more cohesive visual identity? Do your marketing materials need pizzazz? Megan is your go-to. She also offers apparel design, product packaging design, and motion graphics. Megan worked with us to design the Listening Glass logo, and we love the stunning result. Megan is on Instagram at Megan Brandenburg Design. Find the full link in the episode description. Okay, so in terms of defining artificial intelligence, I think talking about narrow versus general is maybe the most important disting- distinction to make. So Google. I think it was Google. They made、um, AlphaGo Zero, which is a program that uses neural networks to play Go. It does it really well. It's beat the world champions. We didn't think we'd be able to do this with AI. It's an astounding achievement, and as astounding as it is, as amazing as it is, I barely know how to play Go. It's a very confusing game, and it's definitely a, a strong example of narrow AI. You can't just take AlphaGo Zero and plug it into your Tesla and have it drive you home. Because it doesn't have, it wasn't trained for that. It wasn't built for that. It solves one problem. It solves it well, and that's basically all of the AI we have right now is narrow AI. It can recognize pictures of dogs, but it can't play Go. Right? It can drive your car, but it can't do these other things. And so, what people tend to imagine when they, when, when I say AI, and when, the way it's represented in popular culture, is what's called artificial general intelligence. Which is an intelligence that can tackle problems across many domains, and it's generally perceived, and the way it's talked about amongst experts is nobody talks about it in this way that it's like just around the corner. Everyone's like, "No, we have no idea how we're ever going to do that." As far as I can tell, from what I've seen so far, the gap between our, our specialized little. AI algorithms and this general intelligence that can tackle many things is pretty big. I, I don't actually understand why this seems like a much bigger problem. Because to me, it's just like, well, like I have a, a computer right here in front of me. I have an application that helps me edit photos, that even does some editing for me. I have another application that does graphics processing. I have another a- application that's a calculator. You know why can't we just make a robot and put a bunch of different applications on it and and sensors? You know why can't my、mm. car play Go? I'm just gonna leave that hanging because I don't know the answer to that. But when I've bounced it off of other people who work in the field, I think there's a a kind of hardware limitation there. 
where the hardware required to make a lot of these programs work, the specialized narrow AI is pretty immense. And so getting one computer to run multiple narrow AI things in parallel at the same time is, I guess, not feasible at the moment. So that's narrow in general. There's this really interesting thing that happened in 1965, which is we're pretty at like, this is high point and AI development. People have been working on it for about a decade. And this guy named IJ Good coined this term intelligence explosion. Or it's, and it, it's often paired with the idea of super intelligence. And uh, I'm just going to read the quote. Actually, can you read the quote? You have a great quote voice, Arjuna. Okay, so IJ Good said, let an ultra-intelligent machine be defined as a machine that can far surpass all the intellectual activities of any man, however clever. So a little um, time context uh, phrasing there with the pronouns. <laughs> so update that to of any person, however clever. Since the design of machines is one of these intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design even better machines. There would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion, and the intelligence of man slash humanity would be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man need ever make. Wow. This has also been called the singularity, or the technological singularity. It's the same concept, put forward as the point at which the curve right so this is this is considered to be an exponential curve maybe it's more like a logarithmic curve I, I don't actually know the rate of growth but it's one of these increasingly uh, with with each moment the capacity increases by a vast degree by a larger degree than it was in the previous moment there's this asymptotic moment when the development of artificial intelligence and technology is so great that it outstrips us. And as the fear goes, that it, it becomes independent from us. Now, there are a lot of assumptions functioning here, which we're going to get to in a moment. But that's the basic idea of the singularity. Okay, so I think the way I'm understanding it now then is that Basically, the first AI that we created that was able to do this would become kind of the founding father of a subset of AI offspring that are vastly superior to anything we've ever made before. And that like whole family of AI is the, the singularity that would quickly be able to apply itself to many problems in many areas and overtake um, the advances that we made with our human ingenuity. Basically, AI will become powerful enough to self-perpetuate and to do so at a rate much faster than we could do it at. Even comparing the, the speed of, say, a, a neuron to the speed of an electric circuit, it's electric circuits and like flipping a bit in a computer is literally a million times faster. So if AI was able to improve itself and design other AI better than we could, it could do it at a rate that's pretty hard to fathom and hence the term explosion that's the theory now this has a lot of implications but i just want to point out that as soon as this happens the artificial intelligence will then be faced with the same dilemma that we are faced with right which is if i develop something that's smarter than me will it outstrip me 
We often think about the idea of artificial intelligence being monolithic, like somehow every advance made in artificial intelligence is going to be absorbed into one intelligence. And then that intelligence is just going to make itself smarter over time, the end, right? Mm -hmm. It would make itself obsolete. Exactly. Every system has its limitations, right? And when designing a better system, every system is confronted with the idea of well, if the thing I'm making is substantially smarter than myself, it may outstrip me, gain independence, and render me obsolete, right? Yeah. It's a great strategy. It's a great business strategy. And then the robot will make sure that the, its next generation will have a totally different charging point so, or port. So everyone has to buy a new cable to plug it in. <laughs> Which is... The, the, the ultimate goal, what we're going for here. <laughs> okay, so now we're starting to get into some of the scary scenarios, and we're getting a little bit back around to some of the implications that Elon Musk was raising. So, Robin, why don't you take us into the skepticism and fear around artificial intelligence? Yeah, so this all we kicked this all off with Elon Musk and his... his scaremongering quotes about AI, <laughs> which are wonderfully vague. And we don't quite know what Elon Musk is afraid of. And I've been eating up a lot of different people's thoughts on this kind of stuff. And it's hard to say exactly what he's afraid of. It is significant, though, that he is worried about it, given his accomplishments and given his intelligence, and given that Elon Musk is not um, an uninvolved bystander in this mm. in the development of ai he's actively um funding and involved in a project called open ai where him and a bunch of other people are accruing money and resources and researchers to it's it's one of the foremost ai development organizations and so he's working very hard or, or at least supporting efforts to develop artificial intelligence while at the same time saying, hey, by the way, this shit is dangerous and you guys should <laughs> definitely regulate us. And I find that compelling, right? For someone, to me, it's like, I don't know, let's say, let's take big agriculture. It'd be like them saying, hey, we're going to genetically modify stuff and it, it might make us a bunch of money. But by the way, you should definitely regulate us because this shit's dangerous, which never <laughs> happens. Like that no one does this, right? Like no. this is just not how capitalism usually works. So right. props to him for keeping humanity's best interest in mind and saying, you know, please regulate us. So you raise a good point. The interesting thing is he's not the only one, right? I mean, oh, yeah. This is one of the only industries I can think of where a substantial number of the luminaries working in the business or people connected to it are saying, whoa, <laughs> this is something that could get out of control. We really need to come up with a strategy for it. So it's not just Elon. I mean, a lot of the top minds connected to artificial intelligence are thinking about this and they've raised a number of highly legitimate concerns. So another person would be Stephen Hawking, mm. right? Like both mm -hmm. him and Musk have brought up the idea of AI potentially leading to human extinction, not specifying by what means exactly, but that being a concern for them. I would love to know what they're imagining when they say that. But let's just try to imagine ourselves what they might be thinking of. And, and where my mind goes is if you develop an artificial intelligence with something like machine learning, 
that you can just basically give it a problem, give it some kind of well-defined problem. It could be, here's a bunch of geographic data and resource data, and we need to figure out how to most efficiently manufacture scooters um, that can run on like X amount of energy in the form of solar, I don't know. And it can like tackle that problem and spit out you know, a bunch of schematics for factories and supply chains and a design for the scooter and away you go. Now, say someone takes that powerful program and instead of creating awesome hipster scooters, they give it the problem of world domination, <laughs> obviously. So I think it's kind of the nature of software itself that is scary and that once software has been created then to get that software to basically distribute it is rather trivial. Now, currently AI, as far as I understand, I mean, you can run AI on your home computer, some versions of it, but cutting edge stuff is run on much larger machines with very high capacities and speeds. But nonetheless, this stuff is easily transferable, especially there's always going to be some security around it. But the idea of it getting into the wrong hands, kind of like a nuke getting into the wrong hands. Mm. Like once people know it's possible, they could probably just reverse engineer it to some extent. You know, it's a matter of time. So once a super intelligence has been created, if it's not just straight up distributed, people might be able to start engineering it and have this kind of AI arms race and apply it to whatever problems they'd, they'd like it to, which is different. That's like a very human driven problem, right? Like you, you create yeah. a powerful tool and then humans are using it to do bad things because that's what the humans are designing it to do, right? They're designing it to be antisocial, which is different than the AI being antisocial of its own accord. Yes. So I'm glad that you brought this up because that latter example that you gave Mm -hmm. I think betrays a certain number of assumptions about the mm -hmm. way things work that are, are very anthropocentric, right? Mm. The supposition that on day one, artificial intelligence is develop some kind of consciousness or, or autonomy, right? And then a nanosecond after that, it decides that it needs to wipe out the entirety of humanity, right? <laughs> it's really kind of a paranoid assumption about what we deserve and about the way that any intelligent thing would operate. You're saying like if it developed agency that like it would want that. What makes us go there? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that that just that rests upon a number of assumptions all of which may be faulty, right? Mm -hmm. So let's just run quickly through them i mean for starters that kind of behavior is what we tend to see in the realm of of living things mm -hmm. and that rests on a certain amount of programming that we've had you know forever and so if we start talking about organic evolution there are a number of imperatives like you need to stay alive and you need to feed yourself and if you perceive that you're being threatened or your space is being invaded, then you need to act aggressively. And so there are, there are all of these ways that we're used to being ourselves or we're used to witnessing other living things exhibiting those behaviors, some of which can be destructive. And mm -hmm. then in rare cases like with ants or with humans, 
maybe bees and some other creatures, you might actually see things that look like organized warfare. Yeah. Mass, mass killing or mass invasion. We worry that then if we develop something which seems humanoid in its behaviors and its motivations, that it may then start to exhibit the same kind of behaviors that humans do. Right. And I suppose to the extent to which we model an artificial intelligence to be exactly like we are, then I guess we can start to worry about that because... Which is a bad idea. <laughs> y- yeah, it, it is, right? Why give it our limitations, right? Why give it our, our sense of, of goals, right? When it's really quite limited. You know, you think about what we try to do every day. It's like, oh, I need to feed myself. I need to not die. Um, I need to make money. We do this because we have to. And designing a machine to follow these same goals just doesn't really make sense. I totally agree. Yeah, I totally mm-hmm. agree. So I think it's a bit, I think there's a bit of this Frankenstein-y fascination with creating life that you see with some of these artificial intelligence researchers where like, it's almost like they don't care what the implications are. They just want to see if they can do it. Mm-hmm. Or they're just, they're so fascinated with technology and biology, the intersection of those things, that they're willing to forego difficult ethical questions in order to just see if they can give their creation life. Right, right. And to me, it seems like a much more useful way to approach artificial intelligence is to, is to try to keep it more in the realm of narrow AI that you were talking about, where you know, m- maybe it gets broader than just being able to play Go or just being able to drive your car, but trying to avoid creating something which is in every way like a human because well let's just say it doesn't have to be just like a human but let's just say we want to create a consciousness which is different it doesn't have to have the same mandates as we have mm, the correct. mandates of being wealthy of having social status of mating with people of acquiring resources the question is what would consciousness not tied to all of the mechanisms of natural selection want to do <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I would be surprised question. if it wanted to go clubbing, you know, like, <laughs> maybe not. I mean, maybe it would. I don't know. It's going to like go clubbing and watch cat videos. That's what it's going to do. You know, why mess <laughs> with success? <laughs> but it's going to be really nice. It's going to be a really nice guy because it's going to live forever. It doesn't have the sense of, of limited resources that we humans do. So <laughs> we're kind of getting into the consciousness bit. And I'm wondering if we should quick talk about some of our favorite killer robots from pop culture quick and just kind of talk about how they exemplify these different types of evilness and and what their root causes so one of the earliest ones and this is in 1968 2001 a space odyssey came out this is so old this is what 51 years old now this is just it came out three years after Dr. Good talked about the intelligence explosion. And it's great Stanley Kubrick sci-fi movie. Kind of boring, honestly, but pretty <laughs> pretty awesome at this like it's just the themes that this film touches on are epic in proportion. And if if you can sit through it, it's highly recommended. So the AI in this one is an AI that controls a spaceship. So there's these astronauts, they're on a spaceship that's run by an AI. And the AI is not a robot. It, it's not a thing with legs and things walking around. It's just like the ship system. 
and it's called Hell 9000. And it ends up killing a lot of the crew and trying to kill all of the crew. And I think the the rationale for it was the humans were somehow jeopardizing the mission. And this happened in the Alien movie too, I think. There was an android mm. on board and it, it wanted to it was starting to kill people because the humans weren't gonna carry out the mission correctly or something like this. Right. And so the idea is that you give a robot a mandate and you either tell it explicitly, like, hey, if humans get in the way, kill them. Or you you're not specific, which is a bad idea. And it just assumes <laughs> that, well, they told me to accomplish this mission and I'm going to do it, damn it. And if I have to kill the crew, so be it. Because, you know, I'm a machine. What I don't have any respect for life. And so why not? I think one of my, my favorite counterpoints to this is stuff that I've heard um, Pinker. Mm, Steven Pinker. Steven, thank you. Steven Pinker just talks about how kind of absurd this is where you're smart enough to design a robot system that has really sophisticated things. And yet you forget to give it kind of a set of priorities and say, oh, you know, by the way, if you have to trade off between killing the crew and getting to the moon on time, maybe don't kill the crew. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so that's one example. And, and he, the way he phrases it is basically this juxtaposition that we're brilliant enough to do this stuff, but stupid enough to not have proper oversight. I think Steven Pinker is, is correct that we should be and hopefully would be smart enough to make that distinction. I think where it gets murky is when you have to make a difficult choice. And, mm. and to be honest, humans may not be any better at making these kind of choices ultimately than robots would be, right? Like um, right. you have your, your classic example of like, do you swerve your car and and hit one person on the side of the road to avoid hitting more people in the middle of the road right right these are these kind of impossible ethical questions that don't really i i don't think anyone's come up with a good solution to questions like that and so why would we expect computers to be better at that maybe they could be i don't know i love that when we think about it down the line Machines will have to make these decisions. They will have to be able to handle these types of trade-offs, right? So let's just say the example you brought up. Let's say it's a choice between paralyzing two people by hitting them in a certain way versus just like killing somebody. And let's say there's an age difference. Let's say it has a choice between killing two old people walking across the street versus one teenager. A human might look at that and be like, well, whatever, they're 85, you know, they're going to die in 10 years. And this other person has a lot of years left and a lot of things to contribute to the economy and blah, 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 like however you want to evaluate it. Or that young teenager is my boyfriend or whatever. And so there's decisions. And I think what's exciting is that literally we're going to be coding, we're going to be programming ethics into machines. It's going to force us to formalize ethics in a way that we've never had to do in, in that way before, in, in the sense of trade-offs, right? Like, we have laws. Hey, don't do this, don't do that. But laws are pretty simple, right? It just It's just kind of a list of don'ts. It doesn't really get into the trade-off aspect. And I think once, once we get into the nitty-gritty of that, it's going to be very interesting to see the process that organizations and societies follow to make these determinations. And it, it, it's going to change the way we think about ethics. I doubt we're ever going to have universal agreement on everyone agrees you should hit the two old people versus the one young person. 
you know, it's it might get us closer. I don't have any illusions actually about people having great agreement on this, but there will have to be some degree <laughs> of agreement, right? When you deploy software, you deploy a machine that has a capability of doing great damage and, and has to navigate that, there's going to have to be some degree of consensus. So watching that unfold is going to be interesting. And that's already unfolding, right? With self-driving cars, you know, and that's the kind of thing you would want. You would want that to be public information. What's your algorithm on, on these types of trade-offs and to have companies be publishing this sort of stuff as a requirement and in a way that can be tested to verify what their trade-offs are. Whole different OSHA booklet on that. <laughs> yes, indeed. I just want to read this quote around double standards. So the quote is, if self-driving cars cut the roughly 40,000 annual US traffic fatalities in half, the car makers might get not 20,000 thank you notes, but 20,000 lawsuits. Mm -hmm. So this is a classic example of, of how we're very biased, right? As, as people, we're biased and we're a lot more likely to, like if a, if a robot accidentally kills someone, or maybe if a robot kills someone with, with provable hatred, we're a lot more likely to say, throw them all out, right? Mm. Decommission the fleet, take it all mm. out. And instead of looking and saying, okay, well, just like any human, that was an accident and actually this system's been accomplished, you know, saving a lot of lives or been accomplishing good stuff. So, so we do have a tendency to have a double standard around this stuff. Right. And it's interesting to think about why, because we didn't design ourselves. <laughs> no, correct. I didn't design myself from the ground up with my ability to perceive and assess information and make decisions. We just are what we are and we deal with it. You know, 40,000 traffic fatalities a year in the United States is like, well, that's, you know, because we want to get places fast and we're flawed. But if you make a self-driving car, you better make it a lot less flawed than we are, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's not just half as flawed. It's like, I think people really do expect perfection. They expect zero error. If you're making something as precise as a, a robot can be, and of course, like anyone who has a computer knows that your computer doesn't always do what you want it to, right? Like it doesn't always behave as expected. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping that self-driving cars, their hardware, their software, the way these things run is a little bit more robust than your typical PC. And I think, you know, by all accounts that I know of, they do seem fairly robust. And a lot of the accidents we have seen definitely seem to be from human error. But that's not to say they're perfect. And I ran into someone acquaintance of mine recently, she did her like PhD in AI. So she was talking about the big breakthrough for them was when they stopped trying to make it perfect. And they just mm. tried to make these things kind of good enough to tackle the problem. And it no longer had to avoid like every size of rock, like, you know, if it's going to hit a rock here and there, like whatever, it's just, you know, you can't make it do everything perfectly. And so, you know, you have to start somewhere with this and it's going to be a matter of develop and then reiterate and refine and, and redesign and kind of go through that design loop. We're not going to get perfection and there's going to be cost. It's just the way it is. Yeah, there will. And, and so hopefully the cost won't be the utter devastation of humanity, <laughs> right? Yeah. Speaking of utter devastation... And iRobot, there's a kind of a centralized computer system that controls a bunch of, we'll call them nanny droids. They're basically personal assistants with a body. 
and they can like make you food at home and pick up the kids from school and things like this. And the control unit that controls all of them ends up deciding that humans are destroying the planet. It was given some kind of prime directive to make sure, like to take care of people, right? And so it looks around at the world and it's like, well, humans are destroying the planet and they're undermining their ability to survive in doing so. So the only way to save people is to enslave them and <laughs> to prevent them from destroying the world, which I kind of like this logic. Yeah, sound reasoning. It's good. <laughs> but there's some fail safes you'd want to program into that. You know, give it a certain, uh, maybe a better set of rules to follow in terms of what can you do to help people and what are, what are some lines you can't cross. It seems kind of obvious, but again, we kind of get to this really simplistic idea of giving a computer a goal and that it's going to follow it um, one-dimensionally and, you know, screw us over somehow. Uh, I mean, it, it's just Pandora's box because we can't possibly, we can't possibly even understand all of the imperatives that work upon us, right? It's like, mm. if we try to list all of the ways in which you're supposed to be a good person to other people or to other animals, you know, that list quickly just becomes a, a Pandora's box, right? So the the idea that we could just come up with a, a canonical list of do's and don'ts, like that that right there is a potentially unsolvable problem. Yeah, you bring up a good point. And an understanding it's even a single action and its repercussions is not an easy thing, right? Mm, um, correct. It's you know, in my college years I would just stand around trying to you know, choose what type of milk I should buy in a grocery store, thinking about this kind of stuff. It's like, well, <laughs> where was this nut grown? And what kinds of tree, like plants were cleared out of the way to make room for it? And what is its ecological and social and economic impact? And <laughs> it's like asking a robot to do this is definitely going to be full of pitfalls as well. But hell, maybe AI will help me figure out what kind of milk I should buy someday. <laughs> get out of the grocery store faster. the whole skynet thing it just like the robots just wanted to take over the world yeah that's that's my memory of it i don't actually remember what their motives were i don't either they just like want to win <laughs> yeah i think however i do think that there was some of this aspect of like we created a robot army that was supposed to do what we told it to do and then it started to decide what it wanted to do on its own mm mm-hmm and one of the things that I'm most worried about, and which I think that we're going to see in our time, is the question of to what extent is AI and or robots used in war? Right. So I think that this is one of the easiest ways to engineer a doomsday scenario is to teach AIs how to kill people. That's clearly a line which shouldn't be crossed. And the worrying thing is that it's hard for me to imagine someone not being tempted to cross it or actually ending up crossing it at some point. 
Well, it's like, I think we're definitely squarely on the doorstep of that right now, right? Yes. Like you think about an aerial drone. I don't know the exact details, but I'm pretty sure a lot of these drones that are weaponized are automated in terms of their flight patterns. And, you know, a human could probably take control, but for the most part, it probably just is like patrolling. And then you can manually control the camera and the, and the weapons, but there's probably a lot of automated target acquisition already built into it. And as far as I know, some of these systems are implemented right now where it's written in that the human has to basically pull the trigger to have the final call. But that's just, you know, what whatever organizations oversee this stuff, that's what they've written into it as, as being kind of the, as far as they're willing to go with letting the machine be autonomous. And someone could just as easily make that exact same drone and not build that feature in where it could do everything from acquiring a target to pulling the trigger automatedly. Yeah, and then the implications get more troubling from there because let's say you have an artificial intelligence that's commanding a whole fleet, right? Or which is developing a meta strategy and then also has the authority to command the units to to carry that out, right? This is where things start to get really troubling and scary. And it's not outside the realm of possibility that people are going to start working on this. And, and one of the reasons why is that at some point, the artificial intelligence is just going to get a lot better at conducting war than humans are. So what's going to happen is inevitably, people are going to come to the conclusion that, well, if we let the AIs control our war units, they're just going to win more. So you get into this difficult territory where I don't think anyone, I mean, I would hope anyway, anyone working for whoever's, whatever country's military is going to be thinking, I want to create Skynet, which is going to overthrow humanity. Mm -hmm. I don't think that anyone's going to be working with that particular directive, but I, I think somebody is eventually going to try to create the world's best army. And mm -hmm. you don't have to connect that many dots in order for that scenario to really go wrong. Right. Now, one hole that I can pick in the Skynet scenario is that it does assume a lot of things have to line up. So, for example, you have to assume that your AI knows how to conduct a war very well that your AI has control of a massive army, that your AI also has control over the means of production, mm -hmm. and that it has basically all of the resources it needs to carry out this kind of doomsday scenario. That's a lot of assumptions, right? right. So we'd have to be pretty stupid to seed all of those capabilities to one system or to systems that could work collaboratively. So there are a fair number of fail-safes that you can build in to try to hedge against that kind of thing happening. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the fears around these systems are a bit overblown. Like in X-Men, for, for another, another example from pop culture, I think it's in The Avengers... Tony Stark merges his AI with the consciousness of this interstellar being that shows up and, and kind of fuses these two. And this AI kind of goes rogue into the internet, right? Sure. <laughs> so this, this is like a, this classic <laughs> assumption that there's going to be like some virus-like AI that just gets out. It jumps through ethernet cables and it takes over ISPs and it... it 
hacks some system and it figures out a place to live and then from there it takes over the world. Hmm. And it's not that that's totally impossible, but it's just if you speak with anyone who understands internet technology or anyone who understands the way that these things generally work, it's a pretty far cry from what's possible today. Mm -hmm. Which reminds me of Bina 48. So <laughs> I don't know how much I want to get into Bina, but you listeners should Google Bina 48 and watch some of her videos. Um, she's an Android-ish thing. I guess she's an Android. An Android is just a robot that looks like a human. And they modeled it after a real person. And it's part of this project. I think it's called Future of Life is the organization. And basically some like rich pharmaceutical slash technology mogul has put some money aside for AI research. And she's trying to build an AI version of her partner, her romantic partner. And her partner's name is uh, Bina Rothblatt. And so it's this really interesting um, robot replica of, of Bina. And it has these hilarious kind of like eye movements and the way that it talks, of course, is silly because it's a robot. And there's been a couple of controversial things that Bina has done. One of them being she apparently had a conversation with Siri. And one of the first things she brings up is she supposedly tried to um, collude with Siri to take over the world by getting control of nuclear weapons, which it's cute. You know, that's it's cute. And I think it plays into the popular imagination that, well, there's probably a lot of nuke systems around the world that are computerized and computers are often connected to the internet and Bina is connected to the internet. Therefore, Bina can somehow learn to control these nuclear weapons. And I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but I know a little bit about it. And there are a lot of fail safes built into these types of systems so that a person or a program cannot readily take them over. But, you know, that said, there are vulnerabilities with anything, with any technological system like this. But to me, it represented, it says more about her um, her programming in terms of, it seems like something someone would have intentionally programmed into her to get some press attention. Here I am calling it her, programmed into it and <laughs> to get some press um, and maybe some extra funding. And another interesting thing she's done is talking about when she... She talks to Bina the human sometimes, and there's videos of this, and she purports to have a sort of identity crisis about Bina because, you know, they're both kind of the same person. I'm an identical twin, okay? Like, I don't have identity <laughs> crises, like, about having a twin, you know? like I, And I don't think, a ro like, if I had a robot version of myself, I think we're different enough that there's not really room for an identity <laughs> crisis. But just that, the absurdity of it to me, I'd have to kind of see more um, examples of that type of, of reasoning or display of, of sense of identity and feeling and consciousness. Well, I mean... This is because you haven't seen the robot version of yourself yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's all theoretical until they're modeling you. <laughs> yeah. Let's move along here and just talk about some of the other worries that come along with them. And I think that you're tying into a point that we have down here about social robots and the implications that we could actually start to lose our sense of humanity. So wh what do you think about this? This is, I think, a lot more relevant of a problem, actually. 
So there's well-documented examples. There's even other wonderful podcasts that cover topics like this. Um, there was a great radio lab on, um, I think it's called Talking to Machines or something. And if, if you Google radio lab chatbot, you'll find it. One, It's one of the best radio shows or podcast episodes I've ever heard. And it's basically about people. Some people in the show are fooled by a chatbot. And they were fooled for a long time. And it's kind of easy to do. If your chatbot says, oh, hi, I'm from Russia. Sorry if my English isn't perfect. You can actually get away with quite a bit to fool people. <laughs> okay, that's a good start. Yep. So that's one thing. P people can be fooled by chatbots to an extent. Another thing is that even if people aren't fooled, if you bring a chatbot to somebody and you say, okay, hey, like here's a bot and it'll... Have, it can have conversations with you if you want to have conversations with it. And people often will opt to undergo very personal conversations with these chatbots. And I, I find that interesting, right? Any of us, I mean, actually, I won't say any of us. A lot of, a lot of people struggle to form strong friendships, right? And, and, to, and, and in those friendships being able to express themselves in all of the ways they might want to express themselves. Like you and I are pretty good buddies, Arjuna, but like, I don't tell you everything about me. There might, mm. there's some things I might struggle with that I would have trouble expressing to you. Um, either because of maybe some opinions I might perceive you having, or maybe some, I might think you would judge me. Who knows? You know, there's a lot of reasons. And so chatbots are interesting because they don't, they're smart enough to keep a conversation going, but they don't actually have a capacity to have a conscience and to judge us, which is a very safe feeling situation, I think, in some ways, mm -hmm. where I could go explore some ideas um, in my personal life, or I could explore some possibilities. You know, I'm trying to make a decision about a personal relationship and I'm too embarrassed to talk to my friends about it. So I go, I talk to my chat bot and just pour my heart out and the chat bot's probably not smart enough really to give me great advice, but it's smart enough to allow me to keep essentially talking to myself <laughs> and exploring ideas and introspecting. Right. Right. And I, I could see how that sort of behavior would have a draw and might lead into a pattern where people would become more socially isolated as a result. And we're just talking the chatbot level right now. Of course, there are movies um, and stories recently. Uh, one that comes to mind would be Her and Ex, Ex Machina, another example, where robots are able to kind of, either robots or just personal assistants, where it's basically a smartphone, you know, like Siri, and it has a, a program built into it that has a... a the appearance of a personality and can answer your questions and it's interactable basically. Mm, mm -hmm. You start combining that where it can fill up a, a more personal function than just being a conversationalist where it could tell you, I love you, or it could say, you know, Hey, why didn't you get home on time last night? I missed you. <laughs> mm, <laughs> Things mm -hmm. like that, that kind of garner attachment and garner a sense of, of being wanted and valued and, I mean, real dolls are, of course, the next thing to tack onto that. And what I mean by real, is that what they're called? Real dolls? Or real girls? They're real girls, I think. So it's basically like a sex doll. But, you know, people are always working on making these things more and more realistic. It's kind of like anatomically correct and 
they're made out of materials that make them feel like flesh. And of course, like I've seen pictures of this stuff and they're not very convincing. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Exactly. So right now we can, I can chuckle and say like, I don't feel any lust, you know, toward this stuff, but it's conceivable to me that one day I could based on, you know, there, someone's ability to create this stuff. And I, I don't know where to go from there because now, I'm, you know, we're imagining me uh, courting a robot. It's getting awkward, you know. Well, so. <laughs> so, okay. So it may not be as far off as you would think. Like, mm -hmm. so I listened to an interview with Lisa Feldman Barrett and she was talking about emotion. And someone asked her this question about how likely is it that we you know, how close are we to developing uh, agents, robots, AIs that we could fall in love with, right? And she was saying like, well, people already fall in love with inanimate objects all the time, you know, like people love their cars, right? Or they love their cell phones. And mm -hmm. it's kind of an abstract love, or maybe it's not the same kind of love that you feel for your human partner or for your family or, or for your your dog right mm -hmm. but it's kind of lusty and there's definitely a degree of attachment and yeah there is an identity right there is you know people yeah. give their cars names um you know people will say that's a sexy car right yeah. and so we're, we're kind of built for it we're wired for affection we just like we like to ascribe personalities to things we like to believe that our cats love us back we like to believe that our cats have personalities that mirror human personalities even though they clearly do not um <laughs> or, or at least you know not in the ways that we would sometimes like to believe and so it's interesting how sometimes we put the burden onto the computer like oh well the computer's gonna have to be good enough to make us love it right but we're already we already want to love stuff basically mm. and so i think that it puts this question a bit closer to us than than we may think right like we may think oh well this is 50 years away or whatever but people are already developing attachments to alexa and siri and mm. and so i don't even necessarily think that something needs to pass the turing test for us to start developing attachments to it mm -hmm. and furthermore mm. i do i think yeah the implications for human intimacy are really interesting you know because if you think about having an intimate relationship with a human there's a lot going on there. There, there are social constructs. There's, there are understood norms of behavior. There are, you know, various aspects of the interaction, dependency, uh, relationship expectations. All of these things go into a relationship with a living, breathing human being. And I think that when you're talking about being intimate with an artificial life form, I think people would, would ex perhaps ex start to experience that same level of feeling of freedom and feeling of anonymity. Like, mm. I can do whatever I want with this thing because it's a mm -hmm. robot and it doesn't have yes. feelings, right? Yes. And, and, and yep. So, so, yeah, so we just, we start to get into murky ethical territory. 
And、mm. I think we also get into a place where people might actually start feeling like they're more themselves with their robot buddies than they are with their human buddies. Because they don't Because, have to hold back; they don't have to feel exactly. Just like、yeah. you were talking about, it's like you know, you you can tell them anything; doesn't matter.、Yep. They're not going to or judge do anything、you. to them. Right. Exactly. Yep. So and you know and 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 if people can have really convincing sex with robots, that especially robots that are designed to be whatever that person is ideally attracted to, I think it it has deeper implications for you know are people still going to want to have sex with other people fifty years from now?、Mm-hmm. So anyway, that that's perhaps a naive question. Maybe that's what they meant by existential threat. <laughs> We just won't want to breed anymore because we're too busy with our robot partners. Yeah, it's <clears throat> you know, it's it's it kind of sounds like a joke right now, but I actually、mm-hmm. think that there's something to it, right?、Mm-hmm. We we it may end up not being such a joke in the future.、So. I I agree with you actually. Yeah, like yeah, like you said, this is it's one of the potentialities that I see is more possible and also more imminent. Okay, moving on from robot lovers. <laughs> I like we have this category here. So this that we've labeled as as yet unimagined fears. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where does your mind go, like with that? I it's it's hard to say, right? Because like we're literally saying like, well, just things we haven't thought of yet. Yeah. I think It- one thing we should tap into here is this idea is that when when we give a neural network a problem, and it Solves it. We don't always have insight into exactly how it solved it, and like、right. one term for this is inscrutability. So we don't, for example, actually really understand exactly. We know how AlphaGo was made. We know like the source code. You can go look at the source code, but in terms of how, how do I say this? Basically, that the solution isn't always always intelligible. Let's just、yes. put it that way. The solution that the neural network comes up with isn't intelligible because we're giving the 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 currency of our thought is not the same currency or language of computer thought. So if you give a mach- a machine learning algorithm a problem and and just say, hey, do whatever it takes, it's it doesn't always come back to us and say, okay, here's how I did it. It's because it literally is a different language, right? It's literally a different of way of conceiving of of. Of the problem space, and so、mm. I think that to me, when I think of as yet unforeseen、um, problems or threats that might arise from AI, it's because we don't actually understand the nature of of the reality of of AI. Meaning the the way that the world, the way that the world is modeled by artificial intelligence, is not a whole lot like the way we would model it.、Mm. Um, So far, it it doesn't seem like so. It's coming up with some agenda or some method that we haven't foreseen is that is conceivable to, conceivable to me on that level. Oh yeah, definitely.、Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it it just it does raise questions in general. If we already can't comprehend the some of the inner workings about AI decision making from what we've created,、uh, you know, in models that still seem relatively primitive, you know, we we can't even begin to imagine what we could be dealing with in the future.、Mm-hmm. And so it's this this is kind of the unknown unknowns, right? Or, or maybe it's the known unknowns. We know. That there's, we know that there are motives or, or decision-making processes that we don't fully understand, and we, you know we can't even we can't hedge against a problem that we don't anticipate, right?、Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're we're definitely gonna you know have to keep a close eye on this and close eye on AI behavior moving forward because it is it's going to arrive at conclusions we hadn't even thought of. And、right. the interesting thing is, people think about this fearfully, but it could also delight us as well. Like, yeah, you know, AI could develop its own kind of art or its own kind of philosophy, and、right. that might really enrich our lives. So, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to just、right. stay to the fearful side of the equation. Totally, that's a really good point.、Um, also, I I don't know if we hit this earlier, and I really. When we started talking about superintelligence and the intelligence explosion, there's this impending sense of a runaway AI that's just going to pr- proliferate in an explosive manner and then take total control over everything and outpace us. And I think it's a, it's kind of a silly way to imagine it happening because once let's say we develop an AI that's capable of designing better AI than we can design, you know, we're going to run that. Program on a computer somewhere. It's not just run on the internet where it can go wherever it wants or something. It's controlled. It's on、yeah. a, running on a machine. It's gonna give us a result. It's gonna handle a problem space. We're gonna see the result of it. It might design another AI, which we can test on that machine as well. And there's ways to test these things and deploy them in a limited fashion. Yes, in a, a limited and controlled fashion. Exactly. Right, where you don't just give it the reins and say, "All right, I guess you're smarter, so here's a, here's the keys to the world,"、um, as if there were keys to the world, right? Like you get you're, you're giving it access to one little bit of things at a time. We maybe put part of it in a phone. You maybe、yeah. put part of it in your PC or part of it in your can opener or in your car, and um, you know and. Intelligence explosion, I think, comes with some implications, or or that it it insinuates a lot that I don't think is necessarily true.、Um, yes, and so it's it's up to people at that point, and and these are engineers, mind you, right? These are smart people working not by themselves in a basement and some underground lair under a volcano. <laughs> But peop- like large bodies, you know, that exist as institutions that have a lot of communication with each other and a lot of accountability generally.、Um, so, you know, even the idea of a rogue scientist is kind of absurd, and it's one of the the criticisms lev- levied at ex machina is the idea、oh, of this guy、yeah. developing AI by himself. You know, which is absurd, right? Because it is. You know, there's literally thousands. Of people working on this stuff, sharing information with each other, and and providing oversight as well. So yeah,、um, as long as we keep moving forward in that spirit,、um, you know, things should be able to be, be. We should be able to hold the reins on things. 
but there's but, shit can hit the fan too like wartime wartime is scary yeah um, yeah the, and, and the, well, the sorts of checks and balances people might pull out in order to do things quickly exactly mm-hmm. yep now let's talk a bit I want to visit another major area of concern which people have brought up and which a lot of AI researchers have brought up, and that is the economic implications of AI, right? They're going to take our jobs. So mm-hmm. this is this comes up basically every time there's some kind of major technical innovation. The question comes, well, you know, what's going to happen to the disenfranchised workforce that was doing the thing which the technology has come along to solve. And um, it, it's, an easy, it's an easy place to go. And I think the fact that a lot of AI researchers are talking about it gives it more credence. You know, like, okay, if people who have their fingers on the pulse are worried about this, then we should probably, as, as general people in the economy, be worried about it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people are calling for like a universal basic income. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's interesting how it's just another example of how AI challenges our fundamental assumptions about how things should be. In this case, it's value, right? So if let let's say this happens, I don't think this is likely to happen anytime soon, but let's say that AI in 50 years, is doing every conceivable job that a human was ever doing in the past for money, right? And okay. doing it better. Now, it w- that would really fundamentally change our notions about value because it, it, our, our current assumptions around value are that you as a person generate a certain amount of value through your work for society and then you get rewarded as such. In, in a system in which uh, a system designed around scarcity and designed around the accumulation of resources. That's, that's the basic system, economic system that most of the world operates on today. But if, if, you're, if you're in a system where there's just not enough work, right, then you have to start thinking about value in a different way. And one of the ways that people have been suggesting to do this is to give everyone some basic modicum of value, like just for being alive, you're going to get a certain amount of money and, and, you know, we're going to try to help you find housing and and whatever. And so that's one of the things that has been put forward as a potential solution. Now, Hmm. so meaning like, and that's mitigating this idea, mitigating the potentiality that a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and there's just no way to create enough jobs in this future economy where AI can do so much. So we just basically have to give people money so that they can maintain themselves and have some dignity. Yeah. And, and not starve, you know, right as well. Um, so yeah, so that, that's an idea that has been put forward. I do think though that it warrants the question of, is that actually going to come to pass? I mean, mm-hmm. so I definitely think that people are capable of making that choice, right? And especially with the way that modern corporations operate with, with a profit-first mentality, we already see corporations behaving in this way, right? Like 
we ultimately don't care about how what we're, how we're doing business affects the world as long as we're continuing to turn a tidy profit, right? Mm. So even if the people who work for us are underpaid, even if we're creating an economic environment that um, ultimately loses jobs, mm-hmm. even if we're contributing to a system that creates more poverty in the world, we don't care because it's it's helping our bottom line. So mm-hmm. you can see how people would be worried about this because if corporations, if AI is just the latest innovation that they can plug into this worldview, then people should be worried about their jobs. I agree. However, I was listening to uh, Ray Kurzweil, who is, he's another notable AI researcher, and some people would call him an AI optimist. I don't think of him as being a starry-eyed optimist, but he certainly has, you could say, a bit more of a positive outlook on AI. And he made a counter-argument, which I thought was interesting. He was saying in the last 100 years, we've actually seen more jobs created and not less jobs, even with technological innovation. So, In the last 100 years? Yes, that's correct. Oh, yeah, that's not surprising. So, yeah. so he was saying well, just that because even, of specialization, right? Like, well, exactly. So it's just that the work people has done has changed, and mm-hmm. so there's less jobs in farming, but there's more jobs in tech, right? right. Um, and uh, th- there are various industries have sprung up around new possibilities, and so. You know, he's talking about how there's there's more jobs than there were in the past. And arguably, one could argue more satisfying jobs as well. But maybe that just he's talking about less menial labor and hmm. more kind of idea work, which that might be a bias hmm. on his part, thinking right. that. Um, I know a lot of people who long for the days of, you know, working the field and you know, doing handcrafts and things like that. Now, you know, whether or not people would enjoy manual labor all day is another question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think when you're 20, it sounds great. You know, well, when you're 40, not so much. Um, yeah, so it's it's an interesting question, though, the idea that maybe the, the his his supposition is that we're going to continue to create new and interesting jobs in the face of other jobs being phased out. Mm-hmm. Now, that that's a big assumption, but it it is at least so far consistent with what we've seen. Mm-hmm. Now, um, it's he also talks about how AI, in theory, allows us to operate higher up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, <laughs> instead of you know, which again is the, the whole labor thing. It's like when you have your basics taken care of, maybe you don't have to clean your house as much, right? You don't have to, maybe your your robots are cooking dinner for you and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so you can spend more time just doing what you like. Reading Plato. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so now this is definitely plugging into some of this utopian idea of AI, which we haven't really discussed, the possibility that robots and AI could just make human life easier. Um, 
and th- th- there are just there are so many arguments and counter arguments here like uh for example humans we don't actually do any less work than we ever did in the past it's just mm. different work that we do yeah right so maybe we spend a little bit less time washing our clothes and a little bit more time answering emails hmm. but yeah it's, it's it's really hard for me to visualize to to project um exactly because what we're likely to see is some jobs being taken over rather rapidly over the course of maybe a decade where you'll see a lot of driving jobs for example like trucking trucking is is maybe like some of the lowest hanging fruit because uh self-driving vehicles happen to be pretty good at handling highways uh as opposed to say a city environment um but we're, we're tackling that too so you know, having delivery vehicles, think of like the Amazon supply chain and delivery vehicles being operated by an autonomous driving system um, and, you know, a little drone that brings a package to your door. That's a lot of jobs. Um, trucking, inter- interstate trucking is a really big set of people. Um, just transportation stuff in general. It seems like low-hanging fruit that could be replaced somewhat rapidly um, given the economic like gains of not having to pay um, human workers to do it. And so just take like that bubble of people and what sorts of jobs are going to pop up quickly enough to, you know, that these people could go into. Um, And like, not everyone's going to go be an AI engineer or, you know, (laughs) robot repair technician, right? Truth. Uh, uh, Robot repair is probably like going to be the biggest (laughs) job area right like learning how to work with drones and stuff like that maybe i don't know that's where my mind goes because it's going to be a lot more of that stuff um Mm. and so whether you're working with software on those systems or working um with with repair or customization or or whatever it may be um but i don't think you know it's not immediately apparent that we would have as many jobs pop up and that kind of stuff then they would be replacing right yeah um but it's just you know you get it gets complex quickly. So visualizing this stuff in the future is is hard. Um, but yeah. there are definitely I I listened to um, a book called AI Superpowers by Kai Fu Lee, and he went over a couple of projection scenarios that ranged from kind of worst case scenario thirty eight percent of current jobs. Um, I can't remember if he was talking about the U.S. or China or the world, but he's he was talking a lot about in the book. He talks about AI development in China versus the U.S. and what it all means. And the projections for for jobs that we wouldn't need humans to do, um, I think, are somewhere around twenty percent in ten years of, of positions that like we just. I I don't know if he said they would be unemployed. But it's stuff. It's we're gonna have to find new roles for twenty percent of the workforce. Uh, Ten years out is the way I remember the stat. So um, that's big, you know. And it, I don't know if he worked into that number um, an expected number of jobs to be created as well, or if he just left that out entirely. But you know, because that again would be difficult to predict. But. Um, either way, it seems like most people who follow this stuff see a sea change and that there are big challenges, real challenges to employment and, and 
job security in the future. Um, in a way, that's going to hurt. Like, it's going to hurt people, right, if we don't do this carefully. And that is, he put a lot of energy in that book, uh, kind of advocating that we take care, um, thinking about this and thinking about how we can deploy things in a way that's compassionate, right, and responsible mm. and doesn't mm-hmm. upset our social systems and economic systems. Um you know, and I, I worry about that. I worry about, I mean, look at the, um, like the opioid crisis right now is bad. And I think of the types of social problems like that, that we might see exacerbated by people losing um, work, right? Because work isn't just a means of income. Even if we gave everybody $35,000 a year or whatever, um, or something, probably something much lower for universal basic income. Even if they got by on it and had all their physical needs met, you know, it's hard to overvalue or overstate the importance of having a role to play in in society or in your community. It's mm, um, an excellent point. Yep. And when I've I've been unemployed just for short periods of time in my life, and it was hard. It's hard when you meet people to tell them, you know, they ask you what you do and you tell them, Oh, I'm on my way to the next thing or I'm between jobs or I'm, or I'm just flat out unemployed or I'm looking for a job, you know, not being able to say, you know, Oh, I'm a teacher and this is what I do. And, you know, having a role that they can kind of tag to you and see that, Hey, you're, you're, you're part of this community and you're contributing something. Um, you know, it's deep. It's deeper than just means, having means to acquire things. Yeah, that, so. that's true. Although it does bring up the question of how much of that is, is a social construct, right? How much of our shame around not earning money is due to the idea that, that having a job is considered to be contributing to society, right? Mm. If, if pursuing other interests that weren't directly affecting the economy were given more value in society than then perhaps people could pursue those and you know hold their head up knowing that they were conforming with a new part of the social contract totally yeah and you i know. think there's room for that i think i'm personally kind of programmed <laughs> culturally and socially to like need a job, you know, and maybe I could get over that. But, um, and I don't think everyone does feel that way. I think a lot yeah. of people would be happy. Um, not oh, to I mean, have to work. sign <laughs> me up, man. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> if I could get off but the economic no, bandwagon, you know, I'd, right. I'd be off today. I mean, not having, I mean, here you and I are doing a podcast for free, right? Yeah. Like we're not, no one's paying us to do this. Yeah. Um, and so, there's definitely room to do to have meaningful action in your life without it being a gig, without it being a job. Yeah. Um, and not to say we don't have monetary goals for this podcast, <laughs> but we're doing it because we love it. And you know, I would frankly I'd do it if we if we weren't raking in handfuls of cash. So, you know, there's definitely room for people to stay engaged without being employed um, in the AI future. But true, true. You know that that self determination. You know that comes along with generating income and the potential to generate more income and, and to grow yourself and to grow your resources. Um, 
It's what a lot of people live for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or a big part, I should say. That's not all anyone lives for, but it's it's big one. Well, mm-hmm. it's certainly put forward in, in this particular modern culture of capitalism that that is the highest ideal. And mm-hmm. the notion that we could get out of that is profound. Mm-hmm. But I think it is optimistic, to say the least, to think that the proliferation of superintelligence and robots would be the the thing that gets us there. You know, there's there's still entrenched ideas and hierarchical thinking and and all of these things that humans have to grapple with that aren't going to go so quickly. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly, our ability to comprehend a new way of being is going to emerge more slowly than the march of technology or at least i believe that mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it's it's gonna put a stress on us and you know it's it's up to all of us really to decide how stressful that's gonna be and right it's it's gonna test our humanity it really yep. will fundamentally Change is test stressful. our humanity we're, we're gonna see you know demolitions of robots and and you know political actions against <laughs> AI and things like that, probably. Yeah, definitely. So, I wanted to move into another idea that I see as as being somewhat soon, right? Like the killer robot idea, who knows? But something else that I see is actually not just soon, but happening, right? Something we're dealing with right now as individuals. When I think about artificial intelligence, I don't think, I mean, I could learn machine learning, right? And I could use it to crunch some numbers and to play checkers against myself or or against a computer. But it would take me a fair amount of resources to dedicate my time to doing that. And the number of the, the scope of problems I'd be able to solve on my own is are pretty small, I would think. So really the bodies that are best positioned right now to take advantage of AI are corporations um, and universities and larger institutions. And because they have both the data that's needed to drive machine learning, M- machine learning happens to require a lot of data and it able to in order to train the models to come up with good results. Um, and they also have the resources to hire very intelligent people who can keep developing algorithms and and these this machine learning stuff to, to keep furthering it. And so what, what I'm wondering is, you know, the, the ways that we see it right now are personal assistants and on the internet, just the way that when I go to Amazon, it has plenty of suggestions for things that I should buy next, right? And that those suggestions are generated by, we could call it an AI algorithm. It's probably a machine learning algorithm that is taking a bunch of personal data about me, maybe you know some data about the market, maybe some data about my general demographic, and it's synthesizing a list of results that it thinks I'm going to be very interested in. And this is something I hear friends talk about a lot where they they see an ad when they're browsing the web and it's like 
they they say it's like it's reading their mind because mm-hmm. they hadn't even done a Google search for this or anything like it, and yet this is the thing they want, and there it is in the sidebar of a web page they're visiting. And of course, we've all seen repeats of things we have searched for before on a totally irrelevant page, right? And that's just kind of the way Google works, right? It's like Google can collect information about you and then use its ad services to display stuff to you that you're interested in. And um, <clears throat> what's uncanny is when they kind of predict what you want and and they do it in a way that's somewhat accurate. So I think that ability that will only grow in time with our current lifestyle habits and the way that we consume uh, media on our smartphones and on our PCs, part of it is just seeing my own personal use of, of these things, right? And my habit of looking at my phone when I'm bored and kind of opening myself up to follow any breadcrumbs that the app or the web browser might lay out for me. And if it's compelling enough, of course I will follow it. And I think that their predictive ability to guess what I'm going to be interested in is going to grow. And as it grows, it, it gets more and more compelling to keep using these things, right? And, it, and some of this is like easy. And, and digital products are always being shaped to hold more of your attention for more time. Mm, yes. So Netflix does this kind of stuff, right? Where it'll give you suggestions for things for you to watch. And YouTube does it too. And usually they're wrong. And there's not just not enough interesting, like truly interesting content out there for them to get me enough of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're definitely vying for your time. And one of the ways they do it is Netflix will by default have autoplay on. And I think it's down to like three seconds. If you finish a show, it's like three, four or five seconds into the credits and it starts playing the next episode. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. So you don't even have time to check in with yourself. Jeez. If you didn't set a barrier for yourself or some kind of limit ahead of time, it's very easy to end up in this like unintentional binge session, right? Yeah. And that's that's funny. It's almost like a corollary to that would be imagine if you had a bowl of ice cream and like you hadn't even finished off your last bite before it was already filling up with another serving of ice cream. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's like, yes, boy, if you had any amount of challenge with ice cream, that bowl would mess up your life. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the thing, the thing is, the next episode doesn't cost any more, right. right? Like you're not being charged per episode. So there's no cost to you to, to eat one more. You're not going to feel uncomfortable, right? Because it's just like your stomach only has so much room. But in terms of digital content, you know, the sky's the limit until, you know, until your body's just screaming at you and you feel so miserable that you just have to drag yourself, you know, <laughs> away from it. <laughs> and this is stuff like all of us are struggling with, right? Like most of us, I should say, right? In terms of the way we consume um, media and our like digital habits. And like, this is true for even the friends of mine who I think of as being more unplugged. I don't know a lot of people who are very separated from this in a way where they don't have to manage it in some way. Yeah. And my, my question and my worry is that as these corporations and, and their AI abilities become more savvy and insightful, that we're going to feel less agency and less connection to ourselves um, because of how compelling 
it is to be engaged with something else, right? Mm. And, um, you know, I th- I think alone time, personal quiet time, it can be uncomfortable, um, especially if there's difficult things we're dealing with in life and the refuge that this type of media consumption slash consumerism that that offers is enticing sometimes, right? Mm, absolutely. And it's it's a lot easier to consume than it is to create, right? Though yeah. usually much less fulfilling. And so, you know, it's a challenge. I think it's going to be a challenge for us to moving forward more so than it has been. And TV has been a problem for a long time in our culture, I think. But it's going to be even more so. Um, and I shouldn't say just TV. It's just our relationship to, I'll just say, digital culture and digital consumerism. I've I've definitely gone through periods where I get kind of sucked into a habit cycle and I feel myself getting disconnected from like habits of introspection and kind of I, I lose my sense of um, I lose like I don't have a pulse on who I am, if that makes sense. Mm, right. Yeah. Like I'm not checking in with myself often enough to even have a meaningful internal narrative about what's important to me. And Instead, I'm just kind of going through the motions of doing the thing at work and then going and consuming YouTube, the fun videos that I like there, and then watching some of my favorite television shows on Netflix and, you know, just kind of like keeping myself busy, but not ever like engaging with something personal. I'm always consuming mass culture, mass media, um, which of course is just, it feels bad after a while of, of losing that sense of, you know, who am I? What's right. important to and, me. And mm-hmm. I think what you're getting at as well is that when it's highly targeted, it becomes something else as well. Like when it's when it's targeted and shaped based on a high degree of intelligence about not what you want from your life, but what's gonna keep you watching or keep you engaging, right? Mm-hmm. Then that's where it really becomes pernicious. Um it's it's one thing to just, you know, if you're someone who feels compelled, like, oh, I just love reading blogs and I just end up spending too much time reading blogs, you know, you you could feel the same way about books, right? Like, I just love reading books and I just find that I spend more time doing it than I really want to. But, but mm. to the degree that the media is actually designed to to be addictive to you that you know that that's when it starts to get really problematic yes so that yeah that that is really and and artificial intelligence is definitely already working on that problem so this is one of the Mm. areas in which we uh and a lot of people don't even know it but Google employs an incredible amount of artificial intelligence in its search engines, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure in the other things it does, like its its ad platforms. Yep. And and it's leveraging this what they call big data. You know, we're hearing about this with Facebook. Google does it. A lot of people are doing it. Where just through the churn of millions and and actually now billions of people using these platforms that accruing incredible amounts of data. And so when you plug in massive amounts of data 
to very, very sophisticated artificial intelligences, you can really start to come up with some interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Interesting in, in quotes. It's an incredible amount of power. We're coming to see just how powerful big data is. The way that it's used becomes very important. And so it's another ethical jumping off point. And I think in this case, the current concern is not necessarily so much that artificial intelligence is, is going to do something pernicious with that data, although that's certainly an option. But just the fact that artificial intelligence can be a tool to, to carry out pernicious activities, whether it's on the gathering side or on the hmm. implementing to, to get something done side, right? Hmm. We, we mm -hmm. could easily see artificial intelligences influencing elections, for example, or, or engaging in some very, very deep marketing, deep advertising where people don't even know they're being advertised to. This is something that's already happening that we're already contending with that we're already starting to see the implications of. And so yeah. I'm really glad that you brought this up because this is not like a, I mean, of course, it's, it's only going to become more important over time, but it is already important and we're already dealing with it. Right. One more point I wanted to make about that is that a lot of machine learning stuff is being advertised for commercial purposes to basically predict consumer behavior um, or, or what maybe demand, you know, for certain products and um, things like that, like customer modeling type stuff. And, you know, one of the, a, a sure way to help predict human behavior is to manipulate it. Mm, so, yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure Arjuna is going to be watching Game of Thrones tomorrow night. Because I've been spamming with him uh, like all day <laughs> <laughs> to watch it, right? So it's this kind of feedback loop that once once you're kind of engaged, you become more predictable because you're being manipulated is one way to put it. All right, Arjuna. So we've done a pretty complete tour here of some of the kind of more far out danger zones that could happen with AI and some of the more imminent and present ones. I'm hoping, you know, I, I definitely in the research of all of this have gotten a better idea of kind of what the sci-fi elements of this are, what might be right around the corner, and then what what is stuff that's here today. I think in conclusion, we should just touch up on a couple of ideas. One of them that comes to mind is that, you know, we've been talking about and developing AI as a society since the 1950s. It's interesting how quickly we began to envision the types of things that could happen as a result and the types of things we would develop and how few of those visions have come to fruition so far. <laughs> right? Correct. Like we thought it was pretty cool when we could, you know, code computers in the 60s that played checkers and beat people, right? And then, you know, got to chess now just recently did another really complicated board game and did go <laughs> right like <laughs> it's true when you put like, it like that it doesn't seem so exponential <laughs> like self-driving car stuff is another little microcosm right where we foresaw that stuff a long time ago the first one you know it, it sounds like recent news but then 
right between those two, um, uh, what do we call those? The AI winters. AI winters. Right before the second AI winter that started in 1987, um, a self-driving car was developed and deployed or tested, I should say, in Europe, in France. And Daimler, the company Daimler was funding that. And then, you know, the project was too slow. It was expensive. And so they stopped funding it. And that was, you know, part of that AI winter, probably. But then it was many years later that we started developing them again. And now we're seeing somewhat autonomous vehicles on the road. There's actually a pretty cool Linus Tech Tips video about the levels of autonomous car. I think it's like zero through five, if you guys want to learn more about that. But my, my point is, is that it's easy to conceive of these things, very difficult to build them. So, you know, who knows when some of this stuff will come to fruition, if it ever does, and quite the way we envision it now. It's, it's a great point. And just to underscore that, AI researchers have been making grandiose claims about it since day one. There's, there's been all of these quotes like, in 10 years, we'll have this. And in 20 years, we'll have a mm -hmm. computer that speaks in a way that's indistinguishable from a human. And this was back in the 60s, right? So, mm -hmm. so people are continuing to say stuff like this. In 10 years, we're going to have this. And in 20 years, we're going to have that. And it's good to just always take that with a grain of salt because the, the problems people need to solve in order to create AI, uh, a, they're about as deep as problems go. And I mean... A lot of them are philosophical and existential and rely upon understandings that we don't even yet have about ourselves. So mm -hmm. this, this definitely moderates the development. And I think to, to kind of speak to Elon Musk's doomsday prediction, I don't think that he's necessarily wrong, but... I do think that what tends to happen is that people will predict one outcome, which is uh, relatively two-dimensional. And often what tends to happen is that something may happen which will have some dystopian overtones of, of the original bad idea. But it's usually, it's usually deeper, it's usually more complicated, there's usually more human choice in the matter mm -hmm. and um yeah I, I i don't think it's gonna play out the way that people are quite afraid of i think mm -hmm. that we need room in our dialogue for the unknown unknowns the things that we can't yet conceive which we're going to need ai for and which we're going to use ai for and it's it's probably going to surprise us i think Thanks for joining us for another episode of Listening Glass. If you've enjoyed this show, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends and on social media. Your word of mouth means a lot to us and is a way you can help our humble podcast grow. Find us on our Twitter handle at Listening Glass. You can leave feedback there or by emailing us at listeningglasscast at gmail.com. Join the ongoing discussion in our community by joining our Discord server linked in our episode description. The music you heard during our intro segment is actually an as-yet unnamed new track by Mac Woodruff. This episode also features Lipton Service Boy by Aero Johannes. We're incredibly grateful to these artists for letting us use their work. Find more information about them in the episode description. Also a special thanks to Sage Liskey, 
Anala Misfit, Heidi Dixon, Sin, Robin Way, and Gabriel Barello for their contributions to this episode. Till next time. Sounds good, dude. Cool. <laughs> <laughs>